There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On a hot Saturday morning on the 13th of January, 1995, a crowd had gathered at the North Gundagai Cemetery to witness the burial of Andrew George Scott, Unlike a lot of other funerals that happen, this one was not so much filled with a sense of mourning or loss, but more with a sense of curiosity at a long journey finally at its completion. For while Andrew George Scott was now only just being buried, he had actually died 115 years earlier. In all probability, In that crowd of 300, there were perhaps very few in attendance who were actually there to see Andrew George Scott, but who were rather more interested in witnessing the very final moments of Scott's alter ego, the infamous Captain Moonlight. The mysterious, romantic, dashing bushranger, one of the very last of his kind from a now idolised era. The story of Moonlight is one of high drama and ragged facts. It's of an intelligent, charismatic man who acted so many different parts in his life. According to legend, he was in turn an immigrant, an engineer, a teacher, a war veteran, a swindler, a scholar, a priest, a thief, but mostly he's remembered for being a bushranger. Andrew George Scott, who preferred to go by George, was born anywhere between 1842 and 1845 in Northern Ireland, right at the beginning of the Irish famine. While the more affluent Protestant Scots managed to weather that storm better than most, by the time George was in his early twenties, the terrible conditions had worn down the Scott family to the point where they, like so many Irish before and after them, had to eventually leave a withered and broken farm behind and immigrate moving to New Zealand in hopes of a better life. After studying in London, George was now a qualified engineer, specialising in hydraulics. However, the British had less need for engineers at that time than they did for soldiers, and George enlisted with the Auckland Volunteer Engineer Corps to fight in the New Zealand wars against the Maori. It's supposedly around this time that the infamous nickname of Captain Moonlight, spelt M-O-O-N-L-I-G-H-T, was first coined. Although the person that tells us this is George himself many years after the fact, and although he said it was a name given to him by his fellow troops, he never revealed exactly how this title came into being. I also doubt that he felt the irony at now being part of a force that invaded his country and brutalised his people, now helping to invade and brutalise another lot. He was at the Battle of Oraco in 1864, a battle which resulted in a British victory that New Zealand historian James Belich calls the cruelest disappointment in the entire war. 
The three-day standoff ended with British troops breaking into the Pa, the fortification, and slaughtering men, women and children. After he witnessed his fellow soldiers bayonet the wounded where they lay, interpreter William Marr expressed his disgust at the generally obscene and profane behaviour of the troops. We know exactly 17 British troops were killed and exactly 53 were wounded because the record keepers of the day thought that was important. We guess that anywhere between 50 and 160 Maori were massacred. Amongst the recorded wounded was George Scott. And he was pretty wounded. Uh, He was shot in the shoulder, the chest and both his legs, which such severe injury done to his lower right leg that he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And we know this for certain because there's military records. These records also show that George was accused of malingering, of refusing to go back and fight, but he would later dispute this and claim that his reluctance to turn to the battle was born out of his abhorrence at the slaughter of women and children. But I'm not sure that this was something that he actually keenly felt, as only a few months later he applied to the armed constabulary, a request that was rejected due to some unspecified bad behaviour while serving in the army. And it's here that we see the beginnings of George's famed violent emotional reactions against anyone that slighted him. Because I don't think it's a particularly logical reaction to an employment rejection to just leave the country. But that's what he did, departing in May 1868, farewelled by his parents and his brother, none of whom he would ever see again. It's around this time that he supposedly visited some of the many tropical islands that would have been frequented by New Zealand ships, places like Fiji or New Caledonia. At any rate, George's daydreams of beautiful warm waters, white sands framed by palm trees, became a well-known aspect of his character in years to come, and he would often go back to those daydreams in times of trouble. With both his cousins and his father already involved, and with his education, wit and charm, George quickly found himself a position in the Church of England and at the tender age of 25 was appointed as a lay reacher at Bacchus March. Later years painted George as a rogue from the get-go, but that doesn't really seem to be the case as he flourished in his new position. A good-looking new guy with piercing blue eyes, a war record and a mysterious past, all wrapped up in a wonderful way of words. George won the attention and approval of many in his first few months. His sermons were so well received that he could attract up to 300 people at a time and was even commissioned to ride out to some of the smaller towns to preach. And we know this is true because he made sure to sign the registry properly every time, so he got paid for that. For about a year, things seemed to be going pretty well. And then there was an issue. When the son of a wealthy landowner was accused of stealing cattle, George provided an alibi for the young man. An alibi that was brought into question by a witness who claimed that she saw George elsewhere that night, along with an accusation from the prosecution that George had been attempting to find others to provide false testimony for the son of a rich man. But as neither of these claims could be substantiated, both George and his young friend walked free. While he had succeeded in helping his wealthy new friends, his reputation had nonetheless taken a knock, and only a few months later he was moved by the church from Bacchus March to Mount Edgerton.
Bacchus March was a thriving metropolis compared to the 400-strong Mount Edgerton, a rough mining community that had one legal pub and a whole lot of sly grog shops. The population were thoroughly uninterested in an Anglican preacher, and George would have definitely felt the social sting after having lived in such gracious company for a year. Although he did manage to befriend one individual, a Danish-born banker by the name of Ludwig Julius Wilhelm Brun. Brun was educated and well-bred, but he was only 17. He was boarding with the local school teacher James Simpson, a man who, while respected because of his profession, was known to be an alcoholic and loose with his cash. George and Brun hit it off, with George visiting the young man at his bank almost every day. In the evening, Simpson would join them, and the three had quite lively conversations. Supposedly, this is where the idea of the bushranger named Moonlight began. Perhaps spoken in jest, a bit of a thought exercise on how to commit the perfect crime. And, at the time, nothing more than that. However, this budding friendship was cut short, turned from jovial to bitter in the matter of a day. The speculation as to why this happened. Later, George was to claim that when a brawl had broken out, that Brune had hid rather than fight, and was therefore a coward and not worthy of association. Brune himself would make allusions as to how frequently George entered his private rooms to the point of being uncomfortable. Either way, when the events of the 8th of May, 1869 occurred, these two men were no longer on speaking terms. It was a misty autumn evening, with a thin fog hanging about the town. While loud cheers and jeers and pools of golden light spilled out from the various sly grog shops, most of the town was draped in an inky darkness. Brune was just closing up the bank for the night, when, as if materialising from the very shadows themselves, a figure appeared. A tall man, wrapped in a large, black cloak, a felt hat low over his darkened face, and a pistol in his hand, cocked, ready, and aimed at the hapless banker. The mysterious man then ordered that the safe be unloaded, and over a thousand pounds worth of cash and gold went into the bushranger's sack. Then, Brune claimed that he was marched first a little way out of towns, then to some stables near the bank, then doubling back around to the deserted schoolhouse. The schoolhouse, run by James Simpson. While in there, Brune said that the cloaked and masked man made him write the following confession. I hereby certify that L.W. Brune has done everything within his power to withstand this intrusion and the taking of money, which was done with firearms. Signed, Captain Moonlight. Moonlight being spelt at the end, L-I-T-E. Brune was then tied up with the bell rope, and the masked man, Moonlight, claimed that if he attempted to leave, he would be shot by unknown accomplices. Then, bizarrely, Moonlight asked him how much of the bank's money was his. When Brune told him the amount, it was fished out of the bag and left behind with the claim that he only wanted to rob the bank, not the bank manager. Then, Captain Moonlight faded back into the shadows and was never seen again. Brune accused George Scott straight away, saying that he'd recognised his voice during the robbery, but it was clear pretty quickly that the poor, impressionable 17-year-old Brune wasn't quite telling the truth. 
His story was full of contradictions, like the claim that he didn't run for the pub for help because it was closed, when it wasn't. Or that he'd said that he'd cut himself free from being tied up when there was no rope marks on his skin and no rope left behind. Most damningly, Bruin could not explain why he hadn't passed the goal to the local police officer as he was supposed to do of a Friday. Added to the shaky story was the behaviour of James Simpson, who was apparently telling people the story of the robbery in great detail, while both Brune and George were still being questioned. As well as that was the fact that the paper, on which the infamous note was written on, had been torn from Simpson's roll book, which wasn't even at the school, as Simpson had taken it home for the weekend. Also, the spelling brought up some questions. M-O-O-N-L-I-T-E. Many believe that an educated man like George wouldn't make such a mistake, although others claim that this was actually part of a cunning ruse to throw suspicion off him. Nevertheless, questions soon turned to the banker and the school teacher who were both arrested and charged with robbery and conspiracy, and alongside with George, all three of them stood trial for the robbery of the Mount Edgerton Bank. And they didn't have any old judge but Sir Redmond Barry himself, the man who would, 11 years later, sentence Ned Kelly to death. George claimed in his defence that he couldn't have been Captain Moonlight, as he was with a woman that night. When asked to give up her name as a witness, he refused as a matter of the lady's honour, something that infuriated the court but caught the attention of the gothically romantic Victorian society. In fact, one newspaper printed that it is not a breach of journalistic propriety to compliment the eccentric member of the church upon the manliness he displayed in refusing to give up the name, although threatened with imprisonment, of that frail fair one whose seductive company kept him away from his virtuous stretcher on the night of the robbery. Yeah, this was printed in a newspaper. Extremely flowery words here. Scott must have made an impression, and not just on the journalists. He was released, along with Brune and Simpson, for the simple fact that while there was a lot of finger-pointing, there was no money to be found on any of them. So the case and all those involved were, for a time, dismissed. But once again, while officially innocent, George Scott's name was now too closely linked to scandal, and given the fact that he was never well-liked in the district anyway, and many believed his guilt, he soon quit the church, left Mount Edgerton, and returned back to Melbourne, where he boarded a boat and headed back to those white-sanded islands he had visited only a few years before, particularly Fiji, where he spent about six weeks. It's then that the rather ambitious young George struck on the idea of actually buying land there and starting some sort of plantation, the usual sort of dream of those who desire riches but have no intention of actually working for them. George departed back to Australia, to Sydney, after making some plans and promises to return back to Fiji with the necessary equipment and seeds for a plantation. During his first week back in Sydney, early in 1870, George deposited a huge amount of money into a bank account under his own name, a sum of £503, a sum any normal person could have lived on for the rest of their days. And how had he come across that money? He had collected this from the mint five days earlier, after selling 120 ounces of gold.
However, instead of purchasing the things he needed to kickstart a tropical paradise, George instead lived an almost insanely decadent lifestyle while in Sydney, racking up enormous bills through drink, accommodation, company, and goodness knows what else. One of the more significant purchases he made was that of the twin-mastered catch called the Comet, which he bought outright for £273 and actually lived on for several months, perhaps still dreaming about returning to those white sands even as he made no real effort to. After only six months, his bank account had now dwindled to a meagre £27.16 shillings, but his ridiculous amount of spending didn't slow down. He eventually had to sell the Comet, but soon afterwards purchased the charmingly named yacht, the Why Not. This time though, not paying with cash, but rather with a fraudulent cheque. Now, there's a rather funny story of George making a bolt for it on the Why Not once his bad cheque had bounced, and there was a warrant out for his arrest. There was many people that said he managed to sail out of the harbour and was only caught just outside the heads, just before he reached open water and safety. But although this was printed in the newspapers many years later, it's also completely false. He was arrested on land and quickly found guilty of not only attempting to illegally purchase the Why Not, but also to purchase a deed box and a pistol. While he pled not guilty, George was convicted on the 20th of December 1970 and after a year of living an extremely hedonistic lifestyle, was sentenced to 12 months in Maitland Jail. However, after only two months, George was transferred to the Parramatta Lunatic Asylum after feigning madness. He did this by eating nothing but raw potatoes for a month, and while this behaviour was off-putting enough for the jailers at Maitland, the doctors at the asylum were less taken in and quickly concluded that he was not mad, but was rather looking for a more relaxed compound from which to escape. This was a suspicion that he soon quickly proved for them, when he threw a pillowcase filled with sand and a piece of rope tied around the middle of it over one of the walls in an attempt that was easily seen and thwarted. One doctor noted flatly that he is a civil but unprincipled fellow without a spark of honour or decency to him, and by June, George was sent back to Maitland to complete his sentence, now with time added. He was finally released in March 1872, but unfortunately for George, prison wasn't done with him yet. Ludwig Brune, now working at the Geelong Grammar School, hadn't been idle in those years. Now more savvy and keen to clear any ill attachment to his name, Brune had hired a private detective to track George down and link him to the robbery, and it was this private investigator that discovered the gold that George had deposited in Sydney was of the same quality as the gold that was stolen two years earlier. As soon as George Scott arrived at the Sydney police office to collect his things, he was promptly re-arrested and extradited to Victoria, where he once again stood trial, accused of being the mysterious Captain Moonlight. He was sent to the brand new Ballarat Jail, a state-of-the-art facility that the Victorian police boasted was escape-proof. George escaped from it. There was a simple but fatal flaw with this new inescapable prison. While it was difficult to break out of the prison cells, it was much easier to break between them. So George cut a hole in the wall of his cell and joined a fellow prisoner, James Plunkett. The two of them then picked the lock of Plunkett's cell, waited for the guards to pass by during his late night rounds, and pounced on him, beating, gagging and tying him up before dragging him to the kitchen and leaving him there, after taking his keys, of course. 
Together, George and Plunkett released four other men, and all six managed to clamber over the high walls and onto freedom, all within about 20 minutes. It was a well-thought-out, cunning plan that even the police and journalists of the day grudgingly admitted was pretty clever, with the Ballarat Courier lamenting that it was a pity that his genius did not find a more legitimate channel. Later, George would claim that his intention with escaping was to track down the enigmatic woman that he apparently spent a night with during the Mount Edgerton robbery. But supposedly, this woman had since married a rich fellow, and now fiercely refused to provide an alibi as it would ruin her now lovely life. Supposedly. If this woman ever existed. After nine days on the run, George was recaptured and the newspapers were now ablaze with fresh new tales of Captain Moonlight. With the golden age of bushranging coming to a close and a young Ned Kelly now languishing in jail a full six years away from infamy, dashing, intelligent Captain Moonlight was all the rage. Back on trial for the same crime and once again up against the same judge, Sir Redmond Barry, George shockingly decided to act as his own defence after falling out with his lawyer. Perhaps he believed his own hype about his silver tongue, or maybe he was remembering how he held hundreds of people enthralled at his church services. But he managed to drag the trial on for eight days, dazzling those presents with his humour, his wit and his razor-sharp cross-examinations of those witnesses that stood against him, particularly young Brune, who he kept in the witness box for six hours. But there was a lot of evidence against him and a lot of angry people were now coming forward complaining of being swindled by George who would never pay his bills. Sir Redmond Barry likewise was unimpressed by this remarkable showmanship and in the end, after all that pizzazz, Andrew George Scott was found guilty of the Mount Edgerton robbery and sentenced to 10 years hard labour at the notorious HM prison Pentridge and forever had the name of Captain Moonlight attached to his, a charge that George would continue to deny until the day he died. George's time in Pentridge was one that was characterised by extremes, with long periods of exemplary behaviour making it almost seem like he was on his way to reform, only to be broken up by sudden and sometimes violent acts of rebellion, such as the time he attempted to take the warden hostage using only a butter knife. Years later, it would be reported that George was constantly in trouble with the prison guards. Yes, he was a thorn in their side, but most of this behaviour came from a deeply rooted sense of injustice at the conditions of the prison. Pentridge, without getting into too much of the gory details, was a terrible place even by 1870s standards, with cruelty and abuse common and encouraged. As one of the more educated and infamous prisoners, George was particularly targeted and felt the need to fight back. In his own words, I am at war with society and the authorities. From the first they have had it down with me. When I came here, I saw that I had to submit to 10 years of insult and injury or fight against it, and I have been fighting against it. However, as dark and grim as Pentridge was, it was here that George met James Nesbitt. The two could not have come from more starkly different backgrounds. While George's was one of education and luxury, James Nesbitt came from poverty and abuse. 
Born in Carlton, his father was a known alcoholic with a violent streak as he faced court on more than one occasion for beating his wife. And the young James himself had several small scars dotting his face that were probably the result of his father's fists. James was only 15 when he was first picked up for attempting to rob a bakery and sentenced to a month in prison. But considering his home life, this might have been preferable. After his release, he again attempted to steal, but was once again caught, and this time sentenced to three months hard labour. And then finally, in July 1875, he was found guilty of robbing and assaulting a labourer by the name of John Dodson, and was given four years of pentridge. While George was 16 years James's senior, the two found something between them that would last until the end of their days. It's easy to see that at first, the two of them would have gravitated towards each other for almost superficial reasons. James would have been enthralled with someone gentle, educated, worldly and affectionate, while George would have basked in James' innocence and devotion. But these initial sparks of interest developed into something much deeper and dearer between the two of them, and they soon became inseparable. While there's only a few mentions of how the two were perceived by the guards, what does come out is interesting. One report noted that the two were great chums, and they sometimes needed to be separated to preserve discipline. Another noted that a day was added to James's sentence for bringing prisoner Scott tea, something Paul Terry, the author of In Search of Captain Moonlight, calls a curiously tender offence. After serving his time, James Nesbitt was released in September 1878 and was waiting out the front of those iron gates when six months later, George followed suit. After nearly a decade locked away in either prisons or asylums, George Scott was finally a free man and both him and James took up residence in a boarding house in Fitzroy and never again strayed far from each other's side. For a time, it seemed that James was a calming, encouraging presence for George, and this, combined with George's natural showmanship, developed into an interesting new goal. They decided to become lecturers on reformation of the prison system. George was still fighting against that harsh, inhumane justice system, but now he could do it with a public audience. He travelled with James throughout Victoria, giving impassioned lectures about the cruelty and degradation of a system that cared not for guilt or innocence, but more about exerting power over the powerless. Within a week after his release, he was back in Ballarat, the site of his amazing escaped attempt, where 300 people gathered to hear the grievances of Captain Moonlight. At one point during the lecture, a jail warden tried to interject and was thrown from the assembly, as the crowd seemed to be enthralled with the always charismatic George. This was 1879 after all, and Moonlight wasn't the only bushranger roaming the Victorian countryside. The Kelly gang was at the forefront of everyone's minds at that moment, and if the public couldn't get their fill with Kelly, they'd take it in the form of Moonlight. While there is a rather romantic notion that these two famous outlaws somehow mysteriously crossed paths during this time, there's no evidence to support this, and in reality, the idea of joining forces wouldn't have appealed to either man. But as interested as the public was, and as successful as the first lecturer had been, things went dramatically downhill from there. George was sick, with congestion of the lungs, which could have been anything but was most likely tuberculosis. And while James cared for him as best as he could, they were far too poor to afford any real treatment. Also, those lectures didn't work out at all. 
with the Kelly gang putting every police officer in Victoria on high alert with nothing to be done about it, they turned their attention to the always visible George. He would find lectures cancelled and job opportunities suddenly withdrawn, all because of pressure from the police. He and James were frequently pulled in for crimes that they quite obviously never committed, from murders to robberies to breakouts. As George sought to expose the horrific conditions of prison life and the utter contempt that the police had for any real justice, the police in turn put any and all effort into making sure that George had no platform to speak on. This was a dark period that George later confessed was made only bearable by his love for James, who, in his own words, saved him from being a hater of humanity. After months of this, now destitute and devoid of any prospects in Victoria, George and James made the infamous decision to try their luck away from police harassment in the untouched countryside of New South Wales. In October 1879, George and James left Melbourne on foot and eventually were joined by four others. Thomas Rogan, 21 years old, Thomas Williams, 19, Graham Bennett, 18, and Augustus Wernicke, who was only 15. All young men and boys he'd met through his lectures, all poor and wayward, who, like James, had initially gravitated towards George because of his kindness, empathy, and showy way of words, and who now all stayed because of promises of a bright future, a future that perhaps included white sands and stunningly blue waves. They had little money and even less supplies, but they all did carry with them revolvers. For protection, obviously. They weren't the only ones to try their luck in the countryside, but with drought and an economic turndown leaving lots of swaggies on the road, there was very little work to go around. By November, after a month of sleeping rough and having substantiated on little more than damper and koala, the party had now reached Wanabadgeri Station, located halfway between Wagga Wagga and Gundagai, where it was hoped that they could find some work. They had actually gone out of their way to get there after being told that the station owner was a generous man who would at least offer food and a night's lodgings, and was sourly disappointed to discover that not only had the station changed hands, but the new manager, William Baines, had no sympathy for swaggies and wouldn't even let them sleep in the unoccupied outbuildings. For two more days, George's party wandered around the bush around Wadabadgeri, soaked by the late spring rains, utterly penniless and starving. As George later put it, misery and hunger produced despair, and in one wild hour we proved how much the wretched dare. Wadabadgeri was the place where the voice of hunger drowned out the voice of reason, and we became criminals. On the 15th of November, 1879, George Scott truly became a bushranger as he and his troop burst into the Wanabadgeri station and took all the inhabitants hostage. At first, this raid appears to be purely about food and shelter as the men broke open the stores with a sledgehammer and stuffed themselves and there appears to have been very little thought as to what they would do next. There was no way to prevent people from coming to the property and every time someone did over the next few days, George would take them hostage too. 
When a local shop owner and teacher came to visit, George was said to have met them at the front of the house and calmly proclaimed himself to be a madman at large, before informing them that they were now his prisoners. He repeated this process every time someone came to the station and soon ended up with a mass amount of people in the house that also included a man by the name of Argoon who was looking for work and who unfortunately, through the terrible crime of being Chinese, suffered the brunt of George's disdain. While it is widely accepted that George treated most of his prisoners well, Argoon wasn't so well received as George complained of him stealing work from honest fellows. Yep, it's the good old the immigrants are stealing our jobs, even though George himself was an immigrant. George's actions so far had been directionless and soon they became erratic and senseless. After leaving the prisoners in James's care, he left the station with the intention of collecting more prisoners, first from other smaller properties and then from the Australian Arms Hotel, a nearby pub. There seemed to be no reason for this, although at the time he did also acquire more firearms and alcohol, but why he returned with a whole bunch of other people, including two children, was never fully explained. George and his crew had taken the station on Saturday morning, and by Sunday evening they had nearly 40 hostages crammed into that station house. It's generally accepted that George didn't have any idea of what he was doing or what he hoped to achieve, and he kind of knew it. The only thing he seemed to get out of this was the enjoyment of being the jailer rather than the jailed for the first time, but the stress was beginning to show as his behaviour became more and more volatile. He more than once randomly threatened to shoot people, and at one stage he did actually shoot a horse dead, a skittish mare who simply wouldn't stand still and annoyed him. This action, more than anything else, showed that what little control he had in the situation was superficial at best, and it was about to blow up in his face. At about 4am on Monday morning, after receiving word from a patron at the Australian Arms who avoided being taken hostage, four troopers from Wagga Wagga arrived at Wanabadjuri. At first, the troopers approached the homestead without concern, apparently of the notion that the whole thing had been greatly exaggerated, but were quickly driven back by shots fired by George and James, who then took their horses with the intention of galloping off into the sunrise. Something that didn't happen, as only George and Thomas Rogan were competent horsemen, and in a jolting, bucking mess, the Moonlight Gang left Wadabadgery Station and all those prisoners behind, having taken almost nothing of value beyond food and a few baubles. However, even though they'd just left 40 hostages behind, they were about to pick up more, a shopkeeper, six shearers, and a farming family by the name of McGeld, who all became bailed up at the McGeld farmhouse just as the four troopers returned, this time with reinforcements not only from Wagga and Gundagai, but also consisting of local vigilantes who were now all eager to take down Captain Moonlight. The follow firefight was intense, brutal, and relatively short. With hostages and bushrangers alike all shuttered up in that small hut, the police and the volunteers opened fire, peppering the wooden home and shooting anyone that tried to run, hostage or not. Luckily for those that did run, old firearms were hard to aim at the best of times and no hostages were killed. George and his band of painfully young men answered back in kind, emptying their revolvers and their rifles. By the end, once the smoke cleared and all the bullets were spent, Constable Edward Webb Bowen was dead, along with 15-year-old Augustus Winecki and James Nesbitt.
It's said that the final moment between the two men was of James trying to convince George to surrender, an idea that George's pride detested. But there was one last quiet moment between the two of them, as bullets peppered the wood and the tin around them, where James placed his hands on George's shoulders and made the elder men look him in the eye, before softly making his final request. George, for my sake, shed no blood. Promise me not to. George swore, and later, when he was accused of firing the shot that killed Constable Wed Bowen, he would simply deny the charge, as he had promised James that he would not. Then, as he made a look out the kitchen window, James Nesbitt was shot in the head. He was only 21. George's reaction was immediate and overwhelming. According to the Gundagai Independent, quite a scene occurred when Moonlight was brought in and saw his trustiest mate with the death wound on his forehead. Falling upon him, he kissed him and affectionately wept over him and cried, Will he really die? Oh, he is my only dear friend. But for him, a great many more lives would have been lost. His leader wept over him like a child, laid his hand upon his breast and kissed him passionately. The Kudamundra Herald also reported that he tenderly raised the dead man's head upon his knee and caressed him and bathed his own hands in his comrade's blood. And in George's own words, he died in my arms. His death has broken my heart. And with that, it was all over. James's death left George shattered, and from then on his only goal was to try and pin the entirety of the blame of the incident on himself, to try and ensure that the remaining members of his gang invaded the death penalty. Yet he never accepted the guilt for the death of Constable Wed Bowen, and it's been suggested that in this at least George was telling the truth. To this day, it's never been proved exactly who killed the trooper. They were back in court, back up against another judge. As before, George acted as his own attorney and stunned the courtroom once more with his auditory elegance. According to the Wellington Times, When referring to Nesbitt, he frequently styled him as his poor dead mate and appeared to be much concerned about his death, at times having to cease his cross-examination of the witnesses owing to his own intense emotion. Occasionally, he would give way to full passion and roundly abuse the witnesses and the bench despite the attempts of the police magistrate to confine him within reasonable bounds while also allowing him full liberty in conducting the defence. But, once again, as before, this all came to nothing and all four men were sentenced to death, although Johns and Bennett were eventually spared because of their youth. After the judge had passed down the sentence, he turned to George and asked him if he had anything to say. George always had something to say. Your church bells toll on Sundays, and you all preach charity. But tell me, where does that charity exist? Do you not all disgrace the name of Jesus Christ? Show me the number of homeless children in your streets, and the number of prisoners that pass from Darlinghurst and meet with no charity. 
You may give your sixpences and your names are put in the paper, but who goes and speaks one kindly word or tells them to look up in hope? I regret that I have broken the laws of this country, but I regret far more the fact that poor Nesbitt lies in his grave than that Bowen lies in his. You have all brought me to the gallows and have left me there, and I will die a man looking at God, fearless of my fate. George was then moved to Sydney, to Darlinghurst Jail, where he spent the last few months of his life in desperate correspondence. These letters, thought for many years to have been lost, were rediscovered by historian Gary Wotherspoon and provide some valuable insight. George, it seemed, was trying to get his affairs in order and had only a few things that he really cared about. One was contacting James's mother, who he managed to send a lock of her son's hair to, with the sign-off being... I am your ever-loving son in spirit, A.G. Scott. The other more pressing matter was what was to happen with his body. George was determined that while separation in life couldn't be helped, a separation in death was unthinkable. In his own words, My dying wish is to be buried with my beloved James Nesbitt, the man with whom I was united by every tie which could bind human friendship. We were one in hopes in heart and soul, and this unity lasted until he died in my arms. For a headstone, he requested a rough, unhewn rock that would most befit, one that skilled hands could have made into something better. It will be like those it marks, as kindness and charity could have shaped us to better ends. And he had even designed his own epitaph. He had wanted it to read, This stone covers the remains of two friends. He'd then written Nesbitt's name and his own, with Nesbitt's death listed as the date the pair was separated, and his own execution recorded as when they were united in death. Andrew George Scott was hung on the 20th of January, 1880, going up to the gallows, fiddling nervously with a ringlet of James's hair that was plaited around one finger. Outside Darlinghurst Jail, a crowd of 4,000 had gathered, even though the hanging was to be a private affair. Some of those in the crowd attempted to climb nearby trees to get a glimpse of Moonlight's last moments. It's said that just as the noose went around his neck, and just before the white hood was placed over his head, George made one last effort to speak. One last speech for a man who could never say enough. What does this mean? What do these people mean? I I think I ought to speak. But the hangman simply shook his head, and shockingly enough, George fell silent and never spoke again. It was quick for him, with a cleanly snapped neck, but Thomas Rogan, who was hung by his side, withered and choked for five minutes before being strangled. George was not granted his final wish. The government had no desire to accommodate the wishes of such an irritating criminal, and the people of Gundagai were appalled at the idea of moonlight being buried among their own good folk. So, Andrew George Scott, Captain Moonlight was buried in Rookwood and lay there for the next 115 years, hundreds of kilometres away from James.
It was only in 1995 when Christina Ferguson and Samantha Asimus heard of this insane tale that the final chapter of George's life and death was written. Together, they managed to raise nearly $6,000 and to convince the New South Wales government to exhume and re-intern George from Wookwood to Gundagai, the first time a non-family member had ever been granted this request. But while you might be inclined to think that these women did this out of some sort of respect for the tragic relationship between James and George, the reality is a bit more brutal. For them, it was simply an interesting project and any talk of romantic attachment between the two men was met with outright denial and thinly veiled homophobia. I thoroughly recommend you reading Jeff Sparrow's article from The Monthly to get a better idea. So, what could have been a fantastical crescendo ends up being a rather bittersweet conclusion, as George finally got what he wanted, if not exactly how. Because while Ferguson and Asimus might dismiss the idea of a queer couple, they still somehow felt the need to change the words George had picked out for his own tombstone. It now instead reads, Laid to final rest near his friends James Nesbitt and Augustus Wernicke, who lie in unmarked graves close by. All passion and love neatly cleaned away. And he did love him. George's love for James was probably the only truly selfish, pure thing he ever achieved in his torrid life. Some wish to debate this, which seems like a strange fight to take up. Paul Terry states flatly that, had their love been heterosexual, then they might have been remembered today as the Bonnie and Clyde type figures, star-crossed criminal lovers whose story would have resonated throughout the generations. They existed together in some of the most terrible and trying times in both their lives, with their love being the one good thing in a sea of troubles. Though they never saw anything more come of it, there is something comforting that after so much strife and a century of separation, these two men now lie in quiet, untouched graves and will never be parted again. Andrew George Scott was a man of extremes. He was cold and calculating, while also prone to wild bursts of emotion. He stole, but was generous, was flamboyant and dishonest, articulate and outrageous, an educated liar. He had such compassion for the downtrodden, yet he hated to be counted amongst their number. He could be callous with those that were close with him, and he loved fiercely, brightly, and without shame. A man of self-made contradictions, sometimes more myth than reality. A fascinating tale. A sad story. A bittersweet ending. And a legacy of a never-ending battle between what happened, what people said happened, what people wished had happened, and what people will always deny.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.